Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The legendary New York Studio School marathons are immersive courses that emphasize experimental learning and expand the boundaries of what drawing, painting, and sculpture can be. Fall 2020 virtual intercession marathons take place November 5th through the 9th. Artists from anywhere in the world are invited to participate in a five-day virtual marathon. Each course is designed to expand upon essential themes and working methodologies in art making. Apply online today at nyss.org and follow them on Instagram at ny underscore studio school. Muse Cisse is an artist born in Long Beach, California, who is based out of Oakland, California. His artistic focus derives from a lifelong commitment to understanding our collective relationships to space, memory, community, and the perceived truths within them. From that foundation, his artistic practice has thematically revolved around the merging of these relationships to form paintings that provoke social reasoning and introduce the viewer's agency in the navigation and narration of imagery. Current work connects with feelings that arise from testing the absoluteness of the strict and rigid aspects of physics and realism found in architecture design in our built environment. Utilizing skewed perspectives of space and shape collapsed into two-dimensional flat planes, he creates surreal geometric interiors, exteriors, landscapes, and structures. Muse has had shows at Part 2 Gallery in Oakland, IMA in San Francisco, Guerrero Gallery in San Francisco, Part 2 Gallery in Los Angeles, SF MoMA, Fisk Gallery in Portland, V1 Gallery in Copenhagen, Spaceship in New York, amongst many others. His work has been covered in Juxtapose, Art Maze, Vice, Create Magazine, and SF Weekly, just to name a few. I spoke with Muse about growing up in tough conditions, art and social practice, his Sierra Leone family roots, making art and loving music, and much more. Here's our conversation. a big sort of um, wave that's kind of happening where people are really thinking about activism and how artwork can socially engage people but at the same time there's people whose voice in artwork is about just making beautiful things or pushing color around and there's you know there's merit to that too like how do you feel about the way all that especially in light of you going to the studio during those protests like Mm -hmm. all the weight of that situation and then what happens when you go in the studio and you're being creative. Yeah. It's um as it's interesting because the way that I look at the art practice is all of it. Literally yeah. everything. Everything is coming in and um comes into me like from the most mundane things from you know the way like a plant could be growing out of a crack in the sidewalk from uh 
a design element in our lived environment that's small and minute and you don't realize it and then you start to realize it and it becomes you see it everywhere to the biggest most macro environmental issues our planet um systemic racism um society in general so i think the art practice encapsulates everything and it's um a matter of what comes out in in the moment um the way that i had been moving i think prior to maybe even like 2016 like when things were different (laughs) um it, it was i felt that um the imagination the the freedom and the luxury to imagine um has been removed from the black psyche and i want it back so yeah i i find that any act of or like the act of exploring what i want to explore is revolutionary in an unfortunate way you know yeah like i i look at art history um you know and as a kid i was looking at art history and i would see like the picassos and the matisse and all this stuff and i would not see anyone that looked like me or that I can identify with like that. And instead of being turned off by it, I was like, well, that can't be right. I need to interject into this because the reason, you know, I'm not seeing people like me is because I feel like the, the socioeconomic space to create and to create abstract work, to create, have a studio practice that is about exploration of yourself is just a luxury that is not granted to a lot of people. So like you look at art history and it's primarily white men. And I don't think it has anything to do with an innate ability that is special to any race. You know, Um, I just think of it as a, a socioeconomic condition that allowed, you know, white men throughout history to have that space and to be um, promoted as, you know, genius uh, in those spaces throughout time. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's like, so for me, that's something that I've always tried to reclaim for myself and subsequently, I guess, people that look like me. Um, I think now uh, it's, you know, it's much more difficult to not have a, uh, a, I guess, like a more upfront connection to what is happening. Um, it's, It's difficult for me as someone who doesn't like, draw and paint the figure very much to make these like very overt um, assertions about life and society. I think a lot of my work is it's, it's kind of um, 
you kind of have to sift it out through the aesthetic and through the ornate and through looking at space. Um, I do a lot. Most of my work involves looking at people through looking at the spaces that they inhabit and create and occupy um, and what that kind of tells us about people. Often I'm looking at like domestic spaces and looking at um, civic spaces and the environment, um, the natural environment, I should say. Um, but yeah, that it's it's hard to navigate sometimes what you like what I want to tell people um I think the inspiration is endless you know there's just so much to draw from um you know and 2020 specifically is just like like so many uh (laughs) socially impactful thematic ideas come to mind you know like um it's just like a new thing every month to where I could have really sat with a, f- a career's work worth of work with one of these topics. I'm kind of now shuffling through them as like, well, what, what do I want to touch on next? And yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting time. <laughs> yeah. Don't you feel like, oh, I mean, an outsider's perspective on the matter but I feel like that making work that may not seem to literally address those subject matter head on like in a narrative sense like if whether you're talking like figurative work or you know defining a reaction to a a certain social event or or feeling or response isn't in a way like making work outside of that that is talking about the idea of sort of expression and exploration that's uh, you know untethered to a certain kind of like box that maybe culturally a certain people have been put in is the ultimate form of kind of expression and kind of like punk like middle finger to I'm not going to define you know what I'm saying like I'm not going to define define myself by the restrictions that culture has put on me because of my race color or situation and I'm going to make work that pushes past that you know and I I think a lot about you know and and how hard it must have been and how amazing it is for those people in history like black artists like Sun Ra or you know from like you know Louis Armstrong to Sun Ra Miles David people who pushed those creative doors and were geniuses and just kind of like made work that was truly exploratory but at the same time it was in fact, very political and very, um, you know, kind of on the nose about cultural existence, but at the same time pushing the medium and pushing the the boundaries of what it was, you know, through this kind of um, deep look into the way that they were making it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think, like, I'm always wanting or, I don't know, I, I feel like, when I see someone like Stanley Whitney making those paintings, I know that there's yeah. there's something deeper to that, but it's it's so refreshing to see that kind of work because it's not the same kind of like, I don't know, not the same message, but it's not filtered through the same sort of aesthetic or that kind of like, um, I don't know, 
the way that you think the message is going to get across, basically. There's sort of a freedom in the way that that comes out visually that I think is refreshing. And it's not just like a gallery saying, I want an artist that's work look kind of like Hinde Wiley because that's popular mm-hmm. right now. Or yeah. if it's a black artist, it should look like this. Or, you know, if it's a Japanese artist, it should be cartoony or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, It's like exactly. that's not the singular voice of a specific people. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I mean, exactly. Like, I, I I, think about the box, you know, that certain identities are put in and kind of expected to function in. And um, I think I'm, I'm constantly trying to not uh, adhere to, to those parameters. You know, I think of someone like Mark Bradford, who is making abstract and interesting and important work that is still heavily influenced by environment and um, condition. And, um, you know, I also think to my collective, uh, I have an arts collective here. Um, we are called Noor, but we were f- used to be called Blackmail, um, M-A-I-L. Mm-hmm. And it was when I f- we first started the collective in 2015, I was so happy because I felt like the collective could push the narrative of the work to be that kind of, um, to show kind of how the luxury of imagination um, is kind of this commodified and controlled element you know um one of the interesting things about we had our our first show in 2015 at the luggage store gallery in san francisco and it was a it was a double entendre or triple entendre because it was the show was called blackmail um and we were like you know kind of the idea was like blackmailing the uh status quo or something like that and it was a a show that was five black males Mm -hmm. and we were just friends. And, um, I think the show, a lot of people assumed a type of work coming out of that show. And a lot of the feedback I got post that show was, it wasn't what I expected, you know? So two (laughs) of the artists, myself included two out of the five were abstract artists. Um, you know, we were showing work that had to do with spaces, space and fields of color. Um, two of the other artists were more of an illustrate, have an illustrative background and were showing their kind of illustrative character designs. And then we had a, the fifth um, member was doing textile work and um, was exploring the medium of cotton and how that plays into identity and racial politics. But I I have this this suspicion that people were expecting uh, imagery of protest, imagery yeah. of um, cop cars being flipped or something like that. Very like this kind of like overt uh direct messaging that is i think expected from the black community and it, it having it be this kind of perpetual folk 
are, um, which personally I think is super important. I think that there should be black artists that are talking about the very real experiences that they're having in the most overt ways that they want, yeah. you know, but just not, that is not exactly, <laughs> that is not the end of black art. I think of black art being all art, you know, like yeah. I don't think there is any limitation or any ceiling like, um, you know, and I, I was so happy to have the the collective because it really brought that po- point into perspective for a lot of people where, you know, like we're, I'm in the collective now, same collective, but we've grown to have, you know, uh, 12, 11 people um, and we're all kind of spread out. We started in Oakland and now we're spread um, across the United States and you know, it still very much rings true where we are a collective artists doing our individual practices that are just all these different perspectives of being us, you know, being these, just being a, a person. Yeah. And it inherently tells a Black story because we are Black in America. And it's just... I, I just love it so much because it really does show this micro, this small group of us show this kind of immense diversity and what uh, black art can be. Yeah. Um, you know, like last year I made a body of work that had to do with the breeze block, which is this cement, uh, mid-century modern kind of designed cement block. I don't know if you've seen it. It kind of has like a flower shape or has no, different... It, it's basically a cement block with holes in it in different oh, okay. patterns. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 You've definitely seen it. And if you... It's one of those things if you... If it starts to like become in your conscious, you'll see it everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I grew up in... Um, like outside of LA and it's a very common motif that I never really put into perspective until recently. And then once it, once I started thinking about it, I just was obsessed with it and yeah. really um, captivated my imagination. And I made a lot of work revolving that motif. And, you know, that was because I wanted to. Because right. I wanted to allow myself to obsess over this mundane, um, small portion of our designed world. And even though the world was crumbling, um, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to still have my imagination. And I, it's something that I refused to, to give up. And I am determined to um maintain and, and renegotiate and show people like me that we can talk about whatever we want to talk about and there's nothing wrong with that and we can talk about I can go from that and then talk about social justice in a different way you know I I most recently had an exhibition called <clears throat> the purest air I've ever known 
And that had to do with our relationship to nature and looking, making these compare, like making this uh, comparison with chopped trees and how we treat nature to how we also treat other humans and bot and human bodies and the black body. Um, so yeah, I think there's always these connections to be made to like larger things. There's just really so much out there that it's just, it just is terrible to think of the confinement of art in any way. And especially with the black community, I feel like there's been such a, uh, you know, we're just under pressure so much from society that there's not much space to think about things outside of that reality. Yeah. And I, I really, really try to carve that space and to make sure that I have that space because I, I want it. And I think that everyone should have it. Right. So, it's kind of, that's kind of the way it should be. And it's funny because like the idea of privilege isn't actually privilege. It's just the way it should be for everyone. It's just when right. everyone isn't given that freedom, then it becomes privilege for one person. Because yeah. it's sad that anyone would have to feel guilty about choosing something to be interested in. The irony is when we're kids, that's kind of like what we're all creative. That's what makes us tick. You know, we're all trying to just get into little things that don't really matter. And I think that's the core of where creativity lies and what, you know, where it comes from. But then at some point we go to school, we make friends, there's like society puts these ideas in our head. And then it all, all we do as like adults is like step on the freedom of like being a child and that wonderment and, you know, that kind of the exploration of the mind and all that. It just gets crushed by this you know, by society yeah. and like what we're supposed to do or like what responsibilities and all those things. And I feel like a lot of times artists, I think, are just trying to get back to that generally, just, you know, reclaim some of that wonder. Yeah, and exactly. As an artist, the reason, you, like you said, the reason you don't see, you know, uh, in Picasso's era, I mean, there's so many reasons, but it's whenever you're, you know, fighting for day to day just survival and just carving out a niche for your day to day life without, you know, this, that, and the other thing happening to you, it's hard to fully engage in that kind of, you know, exploratory oh, thought. It's completely radical. You yeah. know, like, it. in what scenario can... Uh, could a black person do that in that time? Like, it's not... It's crazy, because there's... You, you know, say that you're growing up and you want to be an artist... But you, you know, look around at your community, you need to provide for your family. You, this is not a joke, you know, yeah. like, you can't just be like, in the, in your head, making drawings, you need to find something to make money quickly, you need to improve, try to improve your situation. Uh, yesterday, you know, you need to do something immediate to find the basic needs of survival. There's, there's no, you know, if, if you're trying to be a, a painter, you, you could be killing your family, you know, like you yeah. could be really seriously hurting them by 
allowing yourself to try to do something that's in like a in a fantasy realm you know um and you know the the way that i have gotten to this point is not because it was it was easy it was almost because i was just completely letting go and you know i I've, I've had um a tumultuous upbringing in a way and art for me was that radical like you know what I'm just gonna do it I'm just gonna keep doing it and you know I didn't go to art school I it wasn't something that um, I was ever trying to make money from in fact I was just like you know this is what keeps me sane and I just love my practice so much throughout my entire life that it's way more important to me than money or a job it's just that's just what it it's just there you know and that's just what I do and I um yeah I uh never really put any pressure on it to do anything else it was more like you know like even when I was young it was kind of nihilistic and I don't want to make it seem like I was like a depressing kid because I actually you know had a lot of fun and was rarely happy but I didn't really think that I was going to live very long or I wasn't making long-term plans like that I was just like day to day you know even when I was in yeah exactly even when I was in high school I was like uh you know college I don't really know if I'll even make it that far. Like, I'm just going to focus on this present moment and just ride it out. And luckily for me, within that present moment, it involved really focusing on um, creativity in any type of way. Like, I've always been making stuff. Um, so it was. it never came from a, you know, capitalist or that kind of perspective, you know, never went to art school for it. Just, just, you know, I treat it like a, I treat art and art making like a person, like I personify it and think of it as like a relationship with uh, a family member or something like that. And it's just kind of always there and um, something that I nurture and water like a plant. Well, growing up, was the environment creative? Like, was your family involved in that at all? Or was it some... No. <laughs> yeah? So no. you were rogue? <laughs> uh, I was super rogue. Um, I was rogue. I, so, like, my aunt and my mother were very supportive creative, like creatively when I was really young. Like, some of my first memories ever were scribbling crayons on a piece of paper like maybe three years old or four years old Mm -hmm. and uh, I would scribble like a child does on paper and I would present this paper to my mom and my aunt and every time they would gasp and freak out and um, say that it's a masterpiece and I remember really testing this out and just like making a quick one, showing them, making another quick one and showing them. And 
doing that repetitively and they would always have the same reaction and gasp and like act like it was really important and that's literally one of my first memories and I have really held on to that feeling of you know I I think I was just I was a baby and I was amazed that I could do something that impressed these adult grown people and um, I just loved that feeling so much and kind of really sparked just a life of of making things and uh, being kind of connected to how I felt about how I made things. And it was kind of, you know, always insular. Like I would make something and I would value it based on how I felt about it and not necessarily focused on showing people or anything like that but that's kind of just come later in my life you internalized it yeah kind of like the core of because it starts with like a lot with a lot of people i talk to you know it starts with like someone showing something and then there's a positive response or you know you'll hear about comedians like they they have a hard childhood or something but they make their parents laugh and that's the only time they ever see them really smile and then the comedy becomes something that just really means something to them it's like i'm going to you know, change this environment or something. So, and then you just internalize it, right? Totally. And I think that happened really early for me. Um, And then um, my mother passed away when I was 10 and I was um, left in a household that was uh, much more tumultuous. And that's when that's I rough, was rough time. Yeah, it was a super rough time. And um, my father and stepmother are both um, recent immigrants from Sierra Leone, West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just say that they uh, didn't get it. <laughs> they did, <laughs> what, the parenting? Uh, to say it. To say it um, nicely, they they didn't understand. Were they just disengaged from the whole thing? Yeah, Yeah. they were disengaged. They were disengaged with the whole thing, and the whole thing being me and my life and my interests. Um, um, And you know, it's it's understandable. You know, it's like, and that's the other thing. Like, you know, coming from, like, I don't hold it against them. Um, Like, you know, coming from an immigrant family, like they they really wanted me to be a a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, it was like really important for me to be successful, to like make that journey for them important, you know, like my dad always stressed to me how, you know, how much he sacrificed to get, had to have a life here in California. And I, I am thankful for that. Um, yeah, but you know, that also comes with a, a a life of kind of being disconnected with where I was yeah. um as a child and yeah, I think at that point I was just kind of super insular and really just I focused on my friends, which I was really thankful to have and you know, I was I loved going to school because I thought of it as a social place. Like I didn't do my homework or 
really engage with. Right. Yeah, it was definitely a place to hang out and socialize. And, um, you know, I have really close friends um, that I've had throughout high school and was even that, elementary is, school. Was that still in L.A. or did you move at that point? No, we moved. We moved. Um, I also thankful for my father for being able to move us out of L.A. And we actually moved to Orange County okay. um, in Anaheim, which I was not very excited about. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, it was like a better school environment and mm-hmm. a ve- it was a um, better learning environment. You, you mentioned like the Rodney King riots. Um, yeah, we were in L.A., during that time yeah. and i was a baby um probably like when was that 92 92 or i believe 92 yeah. yeah yeah i was two yeah years old uh so i mean i don't remember anything from that but um i, I think that's when you know my my dad was like oh i need to we need to get out of here get, yeah. get out of here and I, all my family was there too and i had older cousins that went to like the the high school that I would have gone to and it wasn't you know was it a rough part of LA yeah it was like North Long Beach um so like yeah North Long Beach I actually lived like a little bit on the western side more like central Long Beach but like my family and cousins all lived in North Long Beach proper which um borders compton yeah and that uh south central area um so yeah it's not it's gotten uh like south long beach is becoming really popular now um which is kind of bizarre you know when like (laughs) you grow up thinking of a place in one way and then in your adult life it's gentrified and people like (laughs) that you didn't expect to be yeah you know people moving to Long Beach and I was like oh wow that's super interesting my dad tried so hard to move out of Long Beach um yeah that's so weird like I grew up listening to a lot of rap music when I was you know around that age and I remember the um Bushwick Bill from the Ghetto Boys and like you would hear Bushwick stories and now my studio's there and it's I'm pretty sure it's a different vibe than it used to be (laughs) oh my gosh yeah (laughs) on that note I mean when I first went to because I was also into uh you know, hip hop and yeah. um, listen to like Black Moon and uh, just like, uh, I don't know, like all those guys, Lord Finesse and yeah, yeah. I don't know, people that were f- talking about Brooklyn in a way different way, like Franklin Avenue crew and stuff like that. So I remember like when I first went to New York, I was like, oh, Franklin Avenue crew. like, <laughs> And then I like walked around. And I was like, oh, this is not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not as uh, intense as it must have been in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. But, I think it's a lot different. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Like so. That whole, like, well, that's a big yeah. jump to Orange County, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I maybe yeah, good in certain ways, and then in other ways, a difficult in, adjustment at that age, right? In, yeah. In hindsight, I think in hindsight, I appreciate it more than I did when I was there. Like. Yeah. I mean, my the friends that I had there were great. You know, it was not as um, it wasn't. Um, you know, I I didn't have to join a gang. 
yeah which was a real uh plus of growing up you know (laughs) it was definitely a perk that i could because that was what i was really afraid about um in long beach and i know my cousins used to scare me because i'm i'm kind of skinny and i like art so i was they were just like oh you're gonna get beat you're gonna get beat up you're gonna either have to bulk up and join a gang or or do something and i'm just like oh no this is (laughs) i mean how i'm i'm sorry like it it's how to deal with not only from the greater society of large as like a black man feeling like, you know, that pressure, like you were saying, and just, you know, that constant, but then in your own neighborhood and community of feeling like, well, I'm not, I don't fit this mold either. It's like, where yeah. do you fit in? Well, let me add to that is that I'm not just, I don't just identify as a black man, but I'm also half white, which, um, you know, has <laughs> in, in terms of colorism there, yeah. you know, I understand that there's certain advantages that I have over people who are darker than me. And I fully acknowledge that. And um, but the thing that uh, is difficult is that I am not accepted by anyone, really. Um, you know, so like that was a whole thing in uh, if I thought about living a life in Long Beach, I, it would have been tough because even if I, I would have to have been even tougher to get the respect of people who are darker skinned than me to like get them to accept me as um, an equal. Um, and then, you know, in terms of white, engaging with like a white culture, they didn't, you know, I was... I might as well been as black as possible to to them, you know, and so I it it was it was definitely hard to find community based on race, you know, and I think that um, I think because of that, I was very insular and, you know, kind of, again, like just focused on my art stuff and just drawing and you know, a lot of time just being in my room. Um, you know, I had friends in the neighborhood. Um, and I had a lot of fr- I had friends. I had good friends, but um, I didn't have that close family bond of like, um, especially in Orange County, because there weren't too many black people. And then you know, black artists were like, just that wasn't really, it wasn't really a thing. So it was really kind of hard to find. I had a lot of, I should say I had a lot of acquaintances. Yeah. I had a life full of hundreds and maybe even thousands of really amazing acquaintances. But um, at the end of the day, it was still very uh, solo. You had and, to. You really uh, had to get to know yourself. Yeah, you know oh, how yeah. other people do this sort of, of like group identification of like, oh, these are the people. I'm just like this. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you really had to find your niche, which I imagine as someone who's creative, in a way that can be a good training ground for like being comfortable with your ideas and saying, you know what, I'm gonna. This is what I make, and yeah, you know, it's not gonna be like everyone else, but that's what I do. 
that that's an interesting point because I did have to be comfortable with my own decision makings. I couldn't rely on this is what people like you think, that type of narrative. Yeah. yeah. Because there wasn't anyone like me and you know, and it like also I in addition to all of those different layers of identity and um intersectionality, my family is African, West African, which is you know, in in their eyes and in cultural eyes, different than Black Americanness. Yeah. You know, like I was, I would go to Sierra Leonean parties growing up, pretty much every weekend. Like my family was really engaged in the African social life of Southern California, and you know, even in those spaces, the there was kids who were kind of more removed from Africa that were identified as black Americans. There were kids that were more like close to Africa, maybe that they have themselves were born there. And they would always, I remember like being in those spaces and they would always be kind of fighting each other of like the Africans against the black Americans. And they were always pointing out the differences between themselves and kind of making fun of each other. And then I was just this light-skinned kid and they were just like, you know, I just kind of sat there and watched it all. Like, I, I think I took, I grew into this position of observer um, pretty early on where I would a lot of the time sit back and process things and kind of like see, hear both of their sides and kind of mediate in my mind what they were saying and the conclusions that were being made Um, kind of going back to how I was talking about um, my interactions with the recent protests here. It was very much in that same vein of an observer and kind of synthesizing all the arguments and all the sides together and um, making some conclusions of action and tangible actions that I could do to mediate that, discussion in a logical way yeah that's it's heavy man and it makes you feel like humans a a large portion of humans are just going to separate people or see people differently no matter what because you know what i mean it's like if you break it down into levels you know and living in like an asian family like the way asian people feel about different asian people and other people be like oh i just Mm -hmm. what are are you chinese are you korean i don't know but then there's very specific views on like you know inter-asian politics and like that kind of race it's like people will pit people against or whatever it is that makes you slightly different you know what i mean and that's the thing and you see it with kids sometimes where they'll go after that sort of thing when they hit a certain age, but there is a beauty. I always feel like there's a real beauty when kids are younger that they just don't care. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you know that a large part of it is probably socialized. Oh yeah. Because like living here in New York and where, you know, my kid, the schools he's gone to, like it's, you know, the diversity is pretty legit. Like it's people from all over the world. It's not like a black and white thing. Like when I grew up in Pittsburgh, it was kind of like a black and white thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that was kind of the the dynamic, but like there's people from all over the world and they just don't, you know, 
it, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter you know you're just subjected well, yeah, you to diversity so you accept it and it, or they're not even thinking about it it's like kind of beautiful and then at a certain age or something happens you know yeah well it's like uh you see it in cities right yeah. like um with exposure to diversity you understand that those types of archaic categorizing that we do through modernity you know in the modern times that we the way that we think is we the way that we process the world is we see something and we put it into a category like i look around and i see that's a water bottle that puts water that does this that does this and when you see people i think that it's even like you know acts on the subconscious you know and i think that's you see it when you um you know, you double take on someone who may be androgynous because you're like, you know, not to say that you are like trying to judge anyone, but your brain in a sense is trained to Figure see something and put it into a category. And if you don't put it into a category, uh, it c- creates this moment of confusion. And within those categories, there is a euphoric sense that people get from elevating themselves while you know in comparison to other people putting it into a hierarch hierarch high, high, what is that word hierarchical high, yeah <laughs> putting it into that that type of scale yeah where you know i think of um like black on black crime where you know the, the, in order to survive you kind of have to elevate yourself in some sort of way and unfortunately it's on the backs of someone who's just like you right you know like it's it you see it heightened in those spaces because we're we're kind of fighting for this like energy in a way in different forms of energy and in order to give ourselves that little tiny boost, we have to step on somebody. Yeah. And I think that's the fallacy that the modern world uh, perpetuates. And as we move into a postmodern world, you see that those categories don't mean absolutely anything. And um, they're all arbitrary and it's all socially constructed. Like, you know, like... <laughs> that's it's just it's just uh irrelevant and yeah you know we it's like once we realize that we can move on and create an equitable world but you know we tend to perpetuate those differences and put people in boxes of categories uh for our own sanity in in navigating the world because we can't seem to, you know, navigate it without putting people into these defined boxes. And, uh, you know, you see it in cities where like that kind of thing is, is starting to dissipate. And I mean, it makes, it makes me happy, but then I'm also in a city where it's very diverse and it obviously is a bubble because, you know, we were talking about different things in 2015, you know, like here it, it was beautiful because we were talking, we had the, you know, we were talking about post-gender. We were talking about, 
you know, like really breaking down some of these social, socially constructed, um, oppressive ideas. And I think around specifically 2016, it became a, it, we all, the bubbles popped and you kind of crashed to a reality that not everyone thinks that way. And in fact, when you're, when you have an insular uh, way of expressing ideology, where on the progressive progressive side, it shoots up into this idealistic utopia. And when you have an insular ideology on the opposite side, it becomes extreme in the opposite direction. And, you know, that's the reality that we're facing now. Yeah, you know, I feel, but the way I, I feel that it's always the same in a way. Like it, depending on the the environment, those who have certain ideas or or want to push things in certain directions get more of a platform, or it becomes more of a push against that mm-hmm. from the other side. But if you have noticed, like our elections are always like fifty fifty, no matter yeah. how what the environment, <laughs> what the extreme is, it's yeah. always close. It's never a blowout. You know what I mean? So I think our country is just made up of like roughly half the people who are kind of like this is the way we should go. I feel this way about everything. And the other half is like, Nope, it should be this yeah. way, you know? And I think it's just, it's sad, but I think there's two different trains of thoughts. That's why we've had this sort of left and right system for so long. And this, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a polar way of like living or something. And yeah, yeah. I don't know. We, one hopes that if you're on a more progressive side that things evolve and then people like as older people die off, younger people come in and they're more subjected to more diversity of whatever in their life, yeah. diversity of information maybe. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it's taken a lot longer than we hope. Yeah. I think it's, it's also reaching a critical mass in a way with, technology and the internet and social media the fact that we as humans have never been exposed to this much information ever you know like it's just a completely new environment and our access to information is uh we haven't really grasped how to navigate that yet you know and the truth between that and you know like i think of Think of boomers who have never had to question news. Like, you know, it's like you grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 60s and beyond. It's like the the newspaper. Why would they lie? Right. The, the, you know, there's a, a news anchor on the television who's behind a desk. Like, that seems like an authority on, on the subject matter, you know, if you ask me. But then you have now where... That doesn't mean anything, and well, it doesn't sell you know, too. It now well, it's yeah, about exactly. Selling. It doesn't so news right, just wants people to to be to watch you. So right? you'll say whatever. Get so you know. Remember that show Crossfire, yeah. where it was like the guy on the right oh, and the guy on yeah. the left. I mean, that I think was the Pandora's box because people just watch it. It's a train wreck, and people watch it, and then everyone's like, oh, "We got to do that because that's getting a lot yeah. of people interested, and that gives us ads or whatever." And I. Yeah. 
We should I mean, talk. I'm, we should talk a little bit about your art. People are going to kill me oh, when yeah. they listen to this and they're like, "Dude, you guys, <laughs> we get don't well, even, I, I'm, I'm always getting the business from people, and they're like, "You talked for like an hour before you even mentioned art." And I was like, "Well, artists are, you know, we, there's important things going on in life. You know, it's not all this about. is it, and, yeah." And I will say that I studied. I went to school not for art. I went to school for sociology. Well, there you I, go. there's I, our excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I so I do consider myself, you know, a humanitarian and a sociologist and all of that so you know that is a huge part of my practice and a huge part of my life there you go everyone is (laughs) complaining about not talking about painting yet it's coming oh no yeah (laughs) let's talk about painting you know they'll ease the stress a little bit we're going down (laughs) i could rant about the current state of the world for i i don't know days yeah um every time i watch you know a youtube clip of some clip of something i'm ready to go off for hours Yeah. yeah yeah Oh, but that's see that's the thing for yeah I think this happened in a pandemic for a lot of people I for some people they can't that clouds their vision and I think for a lot of artists the way to deal with that is to just go into your own world and kind of mm-hmm. find a little solace of like getting lost in like an image you know what I mean no matter what it is yeah. and and there's a beauty to that and maybe if more people did that people would chill out you know <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, that's like my utopian vision of the future is when everyone does art. And honestly, people will stop thinking that it's radical that, you know, people do art. Like, I often think like when people are like, wow, it's so crazy what you do. And I'm like, really? Is it that crazy? I mean... Didn't you start drawing like, when you were a kid? Doesn't everyone do that? Yeah, ex- exactly. Like in my ideal future, everyone will make art, make music, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be painting on canvas, but no, music I is think, it, don't you think? Isn't music really the yeah. utopian thing? So it's like everyone loves I mean, music, you could, kinda. Well, and you think about it, it's becoming more and more accessible to make. Like yeah. you can make a, like you know, you can make a full song on your cell phone and. Can I just get personal for one second? Yeah. My son came out of school today. You know, it's online. And he's like, Dad, I wrote four songs today. And I was like, what? what I'm I'm sorry? (laughs) And then he's like, I wrote four songs today. He's like, they're not long, but I wrote four. I was like, you're in school. Yeah. (laughs) He goes, that's what I'm saying. During breaks, I was just doing, I was doing sound thing, like this program I was making. It's amazing. Sorry. That's exact. That's no, that's it. That's it right there. And that's how I've envisioned the future is that, you know, your kid goes to school and might make it, might drop an EP on, on recess. Right. You know? <laughs> <A box set. laughs> yeah. Just might drop a quick EP just to explain how he felt about or how they felt about school or but something like that. That's not even that. a like, joke. It's crazy. Cause you can upload that to YouTube and people could be on that. You yeah. could Twitch it and people yeah. are on it. It could be, he could instantly be famous or whatever you would think of as fame you know in this tiktok realm where one you know you could just go viral in seconds uh it's i don't know that's just my like idea of the future i honestly think this moment where people think artists are super special is fleeting right right (laughs) you know um which i'm i'm happy about like I I want everyone to engage in a, a practice that's outside of money, that's outside of uh, social acclaim, 
you know, like there's that, there's like this space for that, that is, I feel like is missing in a lot of, like, I don't know how people do it sometimes. Just like, you know, what do you just go to work and just watch Netflix? Like, I see, that's why I totally (laughs) agree with you. And I feel like that's Mm -hmm. why people get pissed off or like, that's why they hit the tipping point. And I know, cause I have people very close to me who've never found that outlet. You know, yeah. and I don't know, I, I'm sure I mentioned it before, but I don't know how to explain it. But when I'm working in the studio or when I'm making something and I'm in like hour four or five or six or whatever, and I'm just in that groove, that for me is the most peaceful, kind of fulfilling and yeah. uh, soul feeding time in my life. And then I think about some people don't have this. Yeah. Yeah, like, honestly, I feel the same exact way. Like, there's nothing that even compares to that. those moments of in the, being in the studio. Sometimes it could be so painful, you know, yeah. working in the studio. But it's like this amazing, beautiful pain. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I live a life where I'm never bored. I am, if I'm feeling bored... Or like feeling like I need to do something, then I do something right. and I make something and I plan something and novel ideas. There's, yeah, <laughs> right. you know, there's like there's, there's just never enough time in the day, yeah. and um, you know that's just how I live my life and it's really fulfilling. Not because necessarily that I've you know recently had more successes with it, but like it was fulfilling before that. You know, it was fulfilling when I was just making things because I liked it and I wanted to see it. And I, you know, it was, it's just something else, you know, there's no word to describe where I think, think of art. I, you know, I, I often talk to my friends and peers about how I think of art as, as a perspective lens. Mm-hmm you know like as a film that goes in between your eyes and your brain where you can look at something and consider it art um i have this discussion a lot with with friends about you know the limitations of art and art theory and things like that um and yeah you know ultimately i think it does so much more for us than we even like can quantify you know in terms of health and stress and anxiety and self-worth and self-esteem and you know it's all those things and you realize even with all those things that that's all interpersonal that's an all an interpersonal like mechanism that's happening you know like self-esteem is within the self right like you know, uh, self-worth, uh, happiness, contentment, stress, that's all perspective. And art has this ability to, in my perspective, has this ability to transcend all of that and, um, allow, allow you the space to even like talk about things that aren't aren't talkable yeah (laughs) there's no vocabulary for you know right so yeah art is uh, something else yeah (laughs) i think special i think a lot of people who 
you know, are obsessed with money or trying to just climb that ladder are just trying to fill the void of the hours lost doing the thing they don't like to do that's not soul fulfilling and they're trying to buy something that can fill that void but you can never really just buy it you have to find it inside so it's kind of it's sad in a way it is it's super sad you know like i i remember like i have had people you know see like a a mild trajectory for me and then I have, you know, like maybe younger artists come to me and be like, you know, ask me the question, like, how do you get into galleries? Like, how do you get your work right. uh, in these places? And I'm just like, what? like, that's already such the wrong question. Like, I don't know. I like, I, all that I know is that if you focus on your work and you focus on that connection, you focus on that relationship, that everything else is secondary. And that's kind of been my mantra is that everything else is secondary. Like, I don't care, you know, how much someone says that this is the best work. They could be like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Or, you know, I could have a solo show at the at MoMA or something and, still it's really just about the work yeah and about how i feel about it and how you know you see you see people who make work that doesn't move you you know that that looks like they didn't care about it going very high places in the art world you know having a sense of self worth compared to the art world is completely ridiculous because the art world itself is just this this calamity of you have something as abstract and you have something like art which is like theoretically abstract and this the idea of like worth right you know like putting this capitalist uh, value to art is completely abstract in all senses and to like have yourself be valued by that system is just ludicrous because like it's not even a system like you don't even it's all smoke and mirrors you know? yeah. right place right time sort of thing or yeah or you know like who you know or i just circumstance really circumstance connection like someone says that this is important then it's important and you know okay like i think for me it's that's all good but that's again secondary stuff that happens and you know i'm happy to have you know people say that they're connected to work and they're really moved by things i think that's an amazing secondary feeling right but um at first it has to do that for me or it's not leaving the studio. Yeah. I have, I tell students that all the time. It's like, you better be okay with, or, you know, happy just being in that studio all the time working. Cause if that's not doing it for you, the rest of it, even if you do find success, it's not going to last. Like you, you, it's going to be fleeting. You know, you really have to be at the end of the day, you have to be okay with just going into this white box and spending a lot of time with yourself making things. Yeah. And but you see a lot of people who go into because now it's been kind of 
business businessified or whatever to where they just come mm-hmm. in and they want to get you know all right where do i go do this and how do i check off this box and get go sell a bunch of stuff so i can you know do this or whatever instead of actually just doing it yeah and that's honestly what i was afraid about with art school and um even like doing certain types of artwork or in art jobs um I was, I've always feared that if I made, if I made my livelihood based on whether or not I'm selling artwork, that it's ultimately going to taint what I make because I will, I will think that if, you know, something doesn't sell, that it's not good. And if something does sell, that it is good. And then I should make the thing that sells because I'm hungry and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Then I end up just making stuff that someone told me is good by, you know, by a transaction or something like that. So it's definitely I've always had jobs like, you know, close by, you know, I was an art preparator for four years um, at SFMOMA and and I had that job up until the pandemic you know I was on call so I wasn't really going in ever I actually last year worked maybe like six weeks in total and um, so I'm pretty I mean like I'm the artwork is self-sustaining thankfully and I have done it in a capacity where I, I feel confident that I can still do whatever I want mm-hmm. and, continue to explore and I don't feel pigeon um, held into any certain style or, you know, like I, I plan on making, you know, drastic changes to my art uh, practice because my life will probably change. I'm assuming, you know, my ideals will probably change as I get older. Yeah. So I want my art to be able to change too. And into any type of capacity something that I don't even have not visioned yet and I don't know what it looks like and that excites me but um yeah it's like you know I've always tried to keep work in like some type of uh in some you know the capitalist sense of things available in case you know people stop wanting to buy what I'm making or like people stop engaging with my art practice then Instead of changing my art practice, I will just go to work. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's something freeing um, in that, right? Oh yeah, not super like freeing. worrying about super like oh, if I don't sell all the work from this show, I'm yeah, I'm gonna have to do something different. Yeah, I feel oddly yeah. there's like a parallel there to where like not dating or marrying someone where you who you work with in a way. It's mm-hmm. like you kind of want to separate <laughs> those things because yeah. it could get it could get messy. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I've, I, and I value my relationship with my practice in in any capacity that I don't want it to be tainted by commerce and capitalism. Um, and it's super difficult. Like I, Oh, it's there no matter yeah, what, right? It's just yeah, how, how much yeah. it gets into the, exactly. you just got to try to keep you it know. out of the room as much as possible. You just, it's, it's, and it's difficult because you know, Especially now that my art practice has really been like picking up for the past couple of years, mm-hmm. and 
it's become something I never imagined it to be. And it's, it's fully sustaining me right now. And, um, you know, I'm super grateful for that, but I never like for a second think that that's and that like entitled or definite or something that's going to be like that for the rest of my life. Um, you know, and honestly, I've been prepared to continue an art practice that people are less engaged with, you know? Yeah. Um, cause it's really about me and that's just what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's very, you know, I think art is very self-centered and not in a bad way, but shit. I mean, like, well, music is too, in a way, and no one really, oh yeah, you know, shades on that. I mean, it's music's a big thing <laughs> yeah. for you, right? Yeah, no, music's huge. I'm just going music's out on a limb huge. there, and just saying, like, <laughs> I feel like you might be into music. <laughs> I am into music. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was. I always joke to say that I'm a I'm a painter because I couldn't afford instruments when I was young because <laughs> I always wanted to be a rock star, yeah. um, you know, a front man and a band and all that stuff and i have a lot of musician friends and i think i feel like they're the, the most inspirational i also worked at a record store for four years in oakland in san francisco oh in san francisco, in san francisco. Mm-hmm. which one yeah. amoeba no rasputin oh okay okay uh yeah they're actually related in a way amoeba came from rasputin mm-hmm. but um i mean amoeba was the it's the spot you know i'm a i'm a record collector and a tape collector or just a collector in general yeah of artifacts and music so yeah was it big in the house growing up were you listening to music from sierra leone yeah yeah it was um so high life kind of yeah whoa 22 you, know, band, you like 22 band whoa do you know them oh wait but did your dad speak french uh, I mean, French Creole is the native language, yeah. um, so it's he didn't speak he doesn't speak French right, but like iteration of French. Yeah, yeah, an iteration of French. You know, some most a lot of the countries do speak French, right. like Cote d'Ivoire yeah, and yeah. Uh, Congo, and that's where a lot of the music comes from. That's great. That's great that you know High Life. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I personally love High Life. My dad grew up; he's super sakus. Oh, yeah. um, if you ever listen to Sakus music, yeah. uh, Congo mainly, um, but grew up heavy, heavy, heavy in Sakus. I, I like high life a little bit more because it's just like very chill. Yeah. And Sakus has a high life vibe with the the guitar lead, um, mm-hmm. the twangy guitar lead as the the central thing. But yeah, that's great that you that you know that. I don't really talk to many people that drop high life and oh i've been stuff like that. um i mean music i mean sound and vision it's it's no i mean oh, it's something yeah. i've been into my whole life but uh i was a jazz dj in college and i think out of that experience i really learned a lot about music i took a great class in graduate nice. school too on the history of uh, african music and how it moved from africa oh. into the caribbean up the mississippi and you know that kind of tie between music and culture and how it moves and and changes as it moves and gets different ingredients thrown in. It's like a recipe, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I love, cool. I love, um, there's a band called a uh, 22 band. Absolutely love 
It's on Spotify. Really? Every yo, it's, yeah. it's all on Spotify. It's crazy. You know, I have to. You, we used to have to dig through crates to find this stuff, and now you can just. <laughs> YouTube's got it. Don't worry. <laughs> I know. That's. I mean, that's. It's great. Back to the access to information, yeah, yeah. right? Like we just have it all there. Yeah, I twenty two band. I, th- I feel like my brother, my younger brother, is the the head. He's got. He, he knows. He knows it. Oh yeah, yeah. He's just so into all aspects of African music. He's he makes like YouTube playlists um, and puts them out and like sends them to me. Uh, heavy on the acoustic, so he would definitely know. He's. If he's if he's listening to this eventually, he'd probably be like, "I'm so disappointed that you didn't <laughs> recognize 22 Band." Um, but yeah, you know, listen to a lot of. Uh, I, I still listen. I've been listening to a lot of uh, African music more so recently because I think growing up with it, I was always a little bit rebellious on it. You know, just like. Wow, why do we have to listen to this again? Like we just listen to the same cassette tapes over and over of like my dad's favorite Sakus music <laughs> and just like the same stuff over and over. So I was like, you know, can we listen to some hip hop? Like, can we get some like other stuff? But now in my adult life, I'm like, you know, circling back onto those things and being like, wow, that was actually like a really amazing cultural experience growing up and. I want to learn more about these bands. Um, my dad was actually a uh, manager, uh, a, a manager for ASK Productions is what his his like side project production company was. Uh-huh. Um, but he would bring uh, African acts, mainly mainly based in uh, France, mm-hmm. um, like Saku Stars and Yondo Sister and... Um, Franco and other people and he would bring them to LA and uh throw concerts Uh, yeah so I definitely grew up in that mix um I met like you know all these different um pan-african group celebrities um they would stay at my house growing up and we'd go you know my dad would take me to the the African music festivals and things like that. That's so cool. it was definitely, I mean, that was definitely ingrained uh, in my life early on, this yeah. music. Um, what about these My days? dad had a record collection. Uh, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's really big. You know, my dad had a record collection too that I inherited. Oh, nice. Um, well, I pretty much just took them. <laughs> Inher- <laughs> inherited. I inherited air quotes, Yeah. Um, well, I was, you know, I was working at the record store and I saw these records that I grew up with at my dad's house and he wasn't really taking care of them. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and take all these yeah, and yeah. take care of them, put them in my collection. So, yeah, I mean, I music's huge. Yeah. Music's always been big for me. Um, you know, I discovered LimeWire. Oh, remember and, that? Sh- yeah. Audio and, Galaxy. Uh, Audio yeah. Galaxy when I was in like middle school and that just really set it off for me. And, um, I've always been like collecting music. Uh, I moved to the physical realm or I just collect the physical yeah. now. So I mainly cassettes cause they're a little bit more accessible and like, you know, I get a different range of artists from cassettes cause they're, uh, it's easier for 
you know, artists that are more like DIY to just produce. You know, the the vinyl is always king and it's always fun to have. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, a large record collection. and But yeah, like my friends make a lot of cassettes. Um, I'm around musicians a lot. Uh, there's a bunch of musicians in the studio. Um, That's cool. So it's in the environment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's the Definitely what's the, the music scene like in Oakland? Oh, it's really fun. It it's like, you know, the the music scene, like the art scene, it's so it's small in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're all very friendly with each other. You know, like there's a big support group yeah. here. Um, you know, I'm from Southern California and I still have a lot of connections in L.A. and like friends and family out there. Um so it's interesting always to see the parallels because, you know, in L.A. it's a very uh, extreme entertainment right. industry showbiz. place. <laughs> showbiz, Tinseltown. Yeah. Uh, so coming up here, it's very lax. Yeah. Like people, the, one of the main reasons why I wanted to move here even was because of the way people perceived art making. And it was like very just like matter of fact laissez-faire everyone that i know in oakland makes something or like has a art practice that they care about you know whether it's knitting or photography or i don't even know rock formations like whatever it is like yoga like like you know fire poi or whatever things that i don't really care for but like it's just nice that people really value like their um art making and it's not based in uh the commercial realm right this is what they want to do yeah the way that i think about oakland too is like it's the creative um incubator almost you know and then a lot of people leave when they want to take their practice and make it big. You know, they'll either go to New York or L.A. Yeah. There's only there's only two other places <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, but yeah, in Oakland, it's really just a fun uh, music environment um, and art environment. Like it's super friendly, a lot of like DIY things and shows, of course, post I mean, that's pre-COVID. Things have been... But, you know, there's... It's just... Yeah, there's a lot of of cool things. A lot of, like, people putting on other people and giving people opportunities to do stuff. Um, There's this, like, hip-hop monthly called Smart Bomb that um, they do a bunch of amazing things. Uh, They're in the studio with me and close friends. Nice. They put on, like, a bunch of musicians and... uh, like you know there's pacific you and uh salami rose joe lewis and uh uh chef lee and Toro Moise, the homie he like lives down the street um yeah it's really it's really fun it's great yeah, and like everyone is like really good <laughs> in my opinion <laughs> maybe i'm biased but like I, I I often like joke and say that like I could live a full life just listening to the music of my friends yeah. because 
I think that they're amazing and they're like super talented and everyone's so modest and like everyone's just like, yeah, this is like what I do. Like, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. Very laissez-faire, very chill. Like everyone's just like mellow and friendly and it's not competitive at all. Like, So it's just like L.A. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah 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 it's definitely not <laughs> but yeah it's it's a great place yeah. to to be you know oftentimes i'm like i you know think that yeah i could feasibly advance my career if i moved to new york or la i there's a part of me that like you know, I, I think of this alternate reality when when I moved to L- to L.A. or moved to New York. And I do think that I would thrive there really well. Like I love big cities and um, where I'm at, where I am in Oakland, I live in North Oakland and I consider it the most rural place that I'll ever live because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just I, I love being around people and energy and like downtowns. Yeah. Um, so like New York is really fun for me and LA is really fun for me. But I also like to chill very hard and I like moving at a whatever pace that I want to. You know, with in Oakland it's it's great cuz like there's things happening but you kind of know what's, you know, what to expect, you know, the people, you know, you you're familiar with them and you can go out and support really quick or you could just stroll to the studio yeah and it's not you know i'm not distracted by like oh like this like hoopla and like rushing around to do things um i'm kind of just like "Mm, today i just i'm gonna ride my bike to the studio and chill and ride around the lake and hang out with friends and it's really uh it's really nice sounds like kind (laughs) of like the best of both worlds really yeah. Well, I don't want to talk up Oakland too much because we can't have too many people coming. <laughs> you know, it's, it's we're we're impacted. We're full. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not <laughs> so, great at all. Don't come. Don't bother. Actually, not, the rents it's, are, it's, are through the roof. The rent, so forget it, well, it. that's true. Actually, that is, is actually true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it's well. There's your there's actually, your keeping out the gentrifiers. <laughs> there's my caveat. <laughs> um, to the point where it's almost at the same level as San Francisco right now, Jeez. which is. You know, if you think about the dichotomy of SF and uh, Oakland, it's very, it's similar to New York and Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. but maybe like, you know, where Brooklyn was in terms of gentrification in like the 20s or something, you know, like people are now starting to like move into Oakland like that Mm -hmm. and really starting to build it up, build it up the downtown area, um, but it's interesting because that struck, like, Oakland was on the on the super rise uh, right before pandemic and lockdown. Like, my studio is downtown, and there is um, th- uh, thirty five n- uh, new high rise condominiums being built downtown Oakland right now. Yeah. Like within the like two mile block radius like literally 35 so everywhere you go there's construction there's towers being built everywhere it's, it was really scary because 
um, with the gallery that I, I'm with, Part 2 Gallery, and my studios, we were just like, is this going to suffocate us? Is this going to just kill, like, you know, we have prime location downtown. Yeah. Um, which is partly because downtown is hasn't really been developed there's there when we first came there when i first moved here it was abandoned buildings just everywhere it's right off of uh you know prominent bart stations um which bart if for people who don't know is the subway system here um yeah so we were really it's it's been a really interesting time and now we have this crazy dichotomy where like there's just a growing homeless population like that is just skyrocketing and people getting it I don't I don't know how evictions are looking right now but you know people were getting evicted and we have these empty skyrise buildings everywhere it's where crazy. no one no one lives there cuz I mean, the price of things is going all crazy, you know. San Francisco is, from my understanding, like getting hit really hard yeah. from lockdown because, you know, the amenities that made San Francisco like what it was, you know, one of the, the most expensive city in the, United, in the United States, which is crazy that people would live there yeah. <laughs> for that price. Right. But it's because it's like a Disneyland of, you know, for rich people. And it's like all the amenities and luxuries and outdoor mimosa brunches. And, uh, you know, any time of the day you go to the parks and everyone's just lounging. And, you know, it's very like, uh, very like, you know, Sunday afternoon on the, at the park type type energy and that's you know super changing because you know that those industries are not like able to function right now you know it's starting to come back like restaurants and bars and uh, that's like 90 percent of san francisco is restaurants and bars and airbnbs and tourism and stuff like that and it's like new york you know people pay a fortune to live here because of broadway because of yeah, uh, music venues, exactly, because of yeah. restaurants, and like if they're not open, what are we paying for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the rent and housing market seems to be going all over the place, and you know it's now kind of Oakland is very similar to SF, and me and my friends have joked and just like should we just take over san francisco again <laughs> like should we go you know because a lot of the artists um have moved out of san francisco clearly because they're i mean there's pretty much yeah no I, I don't know many artists in san francisco yeah. it's just it used to be like a, this really counterculture art place now it's like you know techies and fleeces and just you know bougie mimosas and stuff like that so so yeah we'll see what happens you know like no one knows no one knows do you do you have any uh the art related projects coming up or anything coming up or has it all been kind of like paused both um pause postponed canceled and upcoming you know (laughs) um 
I just had a big show, um, which was a dual solo show, um, which isn't a thing. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it's a two thing. Two-person show? I kind of just... No. I had two solo shows at once in the same space. Oh, wow. That is a dual um, solo show. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's because I... Um, and that was at part two, part two gallery mm-hmm. in Oakland. That's the gallery that, uh, represents me and how that worked is, um, you know, I had sh- a, a show planned based on Sara Leone called Freetown Veranda. And it had to do with basically the fact that I had not been to Sara Leone yet mm-hmm. because of all these different things in, you know, all these different, um, hurdles you know, and they had a civil war for 10 years and uh, Ebola and finance reasons and things like that. And that have kind of been this barrier for me to go. So I was like imagining Sam, or uh, I was imagining Sierra Leone, um, Freetown Sierra Leone on my own with kind of countering the American narrative and these other narratives that kind of have populated my understanding of the space. Mm-hmm. So that show was supposed to be in LA um, in the spring and that got canceled. So um, then part two was like, do you want to have the show in August here in Oakland? And I was like, yeah, you know, I've, I've already had two solo shows there. So I was like, okay, like, I didn't want this show to necessarily be here. I had it planned to be from to be around my family specifically too. Right. Like I was going to involve them and have them cater the show and kind of make it as if it was um, some of these African parties that I grew up going to. I kind of wanted to bring that into the, the art space, into the gallery space, mm-hmm. um, which I still want to do in the future. But um yeah, so with the show being moved to Oakland, um, I decided that, you know, it's a big space, it's three different rooms, and I was like, okay, like, I'll bring the show there, but I also want to do a show that has to do with the moment now, right. and I wanted to respond to COVID-19 to into the pandemic and lockdown, excuse me, and... So with that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to just have two separate themed shows and split it up in the space. Because typically the, the gallery has uh, a, a two shows at, two, once. Two shows at yeah. once. Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, OK, if, I'm, if I move it to August, I, I want the entire space um, and I want to have two different shows. Really audacious plan but you know i was like okay it's locked down i'm gonna just lock into the studio and get this work done and then um then george floyd happened and that kind of changed a lot of things for me and it changed mainly my uh my ability to get out of bed you know and to do that work and to like actually like be like grinding in the studio and making uh, ended up making you know 28 pieces um f- split between the two shows and both those shows had 
were very involved and had a lot of like uh, research that I was doing, you know, for Freetown Veranda, I was, I was um, engaging in African culture in a different way, looking at independent media coming out of Freetown and comedy, looking at how what was funny to people my age mm-hmm. in, in this attempt to like connect, looking at bar reviews to think about what I would be doing when I was there. So it was really an involved process and putting myself in these different spaces for the show while there was this new element of the, the um, social unrest and demanding social justice um, happening in the world. It, It just felt like it was very difficult to, balance all of these things and then i had a project with sf moma um and there was not to get too deep onto that because it's a whole hour conversation in itself but my collective um sf moma did some some bad moves they just they just messed up to say the least. And they really exposed a type of um, kind of Eurocentric way of thinking in terms of community and addressing Black lives and the Black lives that work there and um, that they show in artwork. And basically, my collective was on the forefront of prosecuting them. Um, So they were the ones that um, teamed up with uh, Taylor Brandon, mm-hmm. who was a worker there, who um, was really mistreated, um, and so she teamed up with our collective, and we were prosecuting the museum. And this is also at the same time that I had just worked at the museum for four years, and they then had just after letting me go because of COVID, um, they reached out for an art project. So they were reaching out, they were, we were working together in an art capacity. So I was like, really? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's not even like, this is the icing on the cake yeah. or the tip of the iceberg. But it was very, very complicated in terms of identifying where I am and uh navigating that situation um because i know a lot of the people that work there and i know that where there are bad people and doing bad things there are also people who mean well and they're trying to do good things and so it was just a matter of navigating that situation and ended up you know making two paintings, two like eight foot by six foot paintings for them in between making all the work for the two solo shows um, and also trying to navigate whether or not that I should work with SF MoMA and whether or not how I felt about the situation and felt about how I can use my position to amplify a message or if i shouldn't partake in them at all yeah. yeah so it was very it was a very 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 complicated summer 
And, um, you know, this is all happening on the micro for me. And then there's the macro that's happening and I'm seeing on my phone and it was just so difficult to get that energy to produce this body of work that I, that I did. And, um, and so when the show opened, um, cause we actually, well, that was the other thing is I didn't even know if this show was going to open, you know, cause when I decided to do the show at part two, it was this very, um, naive assumption that, Hey, you know, this is March, maybe in August, uh, we would, you know, I don't know, have things together and, uh, everything would blow over we by would be, then. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was just like, maybe we would be, you know, reopening society and, you know, things will start to get better. And, you know, July, we had a big surge here in the Bay. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my God, this is how how can I even do this work one and then open it a show responsibly and do all these things. And luckily, when it came down to it, the work got done. The the things are happening i don't want to say resolved with sf moma but things are happening in motion with sf moma and we 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 had the show open and we had reservations only and it worked out really well nice. and a lot of people came through we got a very positive feedback and um you know everyone was safe and healthy so uh it was a crazy summer um as I'm sure most people's summer was <laughs> yeah. here in 2020. No one had a normal 2020 summer. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that this is not a unique experience. No, it's but, unique. You know, it's, er- it's a lot of layers you got yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it was it was wild. So I'm, you know, I'm excited for the the fall again on the micro level. I'm excited for the fall because. Um, I'm working on now a, a big mural here in Oakland. Um, I'm not a, really a muralist, but uh, people really like to ask for murals. <laughs> um, they're fun when you see but them. I'm gonna do, like it's, it's they're cool fun when, and it's, it's you know, maybe not yeah. doing it, but when you see it, your work that big, it's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, no, it, it's 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 fun, and I like it. But it's just the studio practice. There's just so much more happening for yeah. me there. Um, and I think of murals as like a public engagement thing where like, it's, you know, I can't be as brazen as I am in my studio. I need to get people's, I need to talk to people, engage with the community, which I like to do, but it's just, it's just harder when you're also an abstract artist and in a place like Oakland where, you know, people want I, I have a strong sense that people want to see figurative representation and direct calls to action yeah. and um but yeah this fall i have that plan a big mural and then i have um a couple works that i'm going to be showing in uh los angeles at uta uh curated by essence harden nice which I'm really excited for because it's only a couple pieces, you know, like it going from making um, early December. Okay. I don't have a f- date yet, but um, it's going to be early September at um, United Talent Agency in, in Beverly Hills. And um, yeah, I'm like really excited about that. The 
curator for that is super awesome essence um and the lineup of artists that they've put together has been really great i'm excited to be in the company of the artists that are showing in that show um yeah and it's you know it goes from you know a summer of making literally 30 pieces um to a fall where i get to make two pieces <laughs> and focus in on them nice and, uh so I'm really excited to spend a lot of time on a couple pieces instead of uh, the other way around. Yeah, that sounds good. What about, so for people who aren't on the West Coast or can't see the work in person, where's the best mm-hmm. place for them? I mean, you do you do social media, so there's that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do social media. Um, I don't know if I'm really good at it. It's, it takes me, like, so long to post something because I'm just like, ugh. But, um, yeah, social media at Muse. Um, it's really nice having, like, like a, a unique name. <laughs> I just, all my, all my handles are just my name. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just at Muse and uh, com is my website. Um, Part 2 Gallery has, uh, like, a list of available works and, you know, like, has the exhibition history i'm also i also put out exhibition catalogs nice um yeah so i have one for my last show in summer 2019 called skeletons Mm -hmm. that's available um and then i'm making uh, a new one for this past show um the double show the double show yeah freetown veranda and the purest era i've ever known nice so i'll be making an exhibition catalog for that in the coming month uh, and that will be available probably through part two or my website or social media and those things. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time. It was great to to meet and talk to you. Yeah, yeah. You too. I feel like we talked a lot. <laughs> we talked about a lot. <laughs> Some coins.